Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. How can a person live boldly for the Lord with no concern or fear of what any person says? The answer is in these two verses, verses five and six. Uh, they involve the negative and they involve a positive, but they're like two sides of the same coin. Uh, you have to have both of them as we will see. In other words, without one of these, you can't have the other. Both have to be uh, operative. Both have to be um, part of your life uh, in order to be able to live boldly for the Lord, having no concern, no fear whatsoever. So here's what the verses read. Let your conversation be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. This is the answer to how to live for the Lord, boldly for the Lord, having no concern or fear uh, whatsoever of any person, what they might say. Now, in the King James, let your conversation be without covetous. Uh, Conversation is literally... Your lifestyle. It's the old King James. Um, it's tropos. And, and it literally means it's, it's your manner. It's your way. It's your fashion. Uh, it's your manner of life. It's your character. In other words, it's what it's saying. So let, you, let your character, let your way of life, let, you, let your lifestyle be without covetousness. So the issue that we have before us is one of ultimately character. Character is what people think of us and what God knows about us. Certainly, you know, God knows our character. People think they know our character. And they may know our character. But, you know, we want people to think highly of us, right? That we're ethical, that we're fair, that we're just, that uh, we model the character of God. Uh, And so the character is what people think of us. But God knows, certainly God knows, obviously, uh, what our character is. Now, in a modern world where religion, let alone biblical godliness, is mocked and ridiculed, there's very little value seen in a righteous character. That's tragic, but that is true, unfortunately. Yet, for a believer in Jesus, character is of utmost importance. Um, And so we we cannot uh, minimize uh, our character in our life. Uh, it is of utmost importance to a believer uh, for a whole host of reasons, uh, not the least of which is that when you tell somebody something, uh, they know it's true, they can trust what you say, they can rely on what you say 
that type of thing. Now, in the King James, uh, let your uh, conversation be without covetousness. Now, it's interesting, this word covetousness here, aphilarguros, uh, uh, literally means, uh, it's aphilarguros, ah, negates or negates something. When you, th when you have the prefix ah, before a word, it means no. Like ah, millennial, no millennial kingdom, no thousand years. Or athe atheist, atheist. Uh, a theist is a believer in God. So if you're an atheist, you're no God. So that prefix a means no. Um, Philargoros literally is uh, avarice uh, or a lover of money. Literally, it's a, it's a lover of silver or a friend of silver. So it's understood to be a lover of money. And when you look at the, the way it's translated in different verses, uh, the King James says, let your lifestyle, let your conversation uh, be without covetousness. But the ASV, be ye free from the love of money. The NKJV says, let your conduct be without covetousness. The ESV, keep your life free from love of money. And uh, the different... Uh, Greek dictionaries that I looked at, all of them, like Thayer's, uh, Thayer's expanded definition, not loving money. That's literally what it means, not loving money. So why did the King James and the New King James and perhaps some others, and I only put down three, almost every version, and if you have a different version here, uh, it probably says, let your life be without the love of money, not having the love of uh, of money. Uh, that is correct in, in how it's translated. And it's not that the KJV or even the NKJV is a wrong or a bad translation uh, as we go down and consider this. And, and I want us to consider it in, in light of, look at 1 Timothy 6.10. I have it down here. For the love of money is the root of all evil which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, consider what the love of money uh, that this verse talks about produces, and perhaps why some versions translate Hebrews 13, 5, let your, let your conversation, your conduct, your lifestyle, uh, your character be without covetousness. Number one, love of money is the root of all evil. Is money the root of all evil? No. There's nothing wrong with money. It's the love of money which is the root of all evil. And the love of, uh, uh, of money, which is the, the, the basis of all evil, um, some who covet money erred. They strayed from the faith. That's what it says in 1 Timothy 6.10. Well, which while some covet after, they have erred. Not all, but some have erred from the faith. They've left the faith uh, because of it. And not only that, they pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Love of money can lead uh, to many sorrows. And oftentimes does. It's not having a lot of money that leads to sorrows. It's the love of money. And the love of money 
can be an affliction for, for anybody in any economic state. You can have a billion dollars in your bank account and you can be guilty of the love of money. Uh, and, and the love of money rules your life. Or you can have $10 in your bank account and you can be just as guilty as that person with a billion dollars and have a, a love of money. You just don't have it and he has it. That person has. So it's not how much you have. It's your desire for it. Your love of money. Now, consider in, in light of this, um, Deuteronomy 8, 10 through 20. And before we read this, um, I, I think why the King James translated it, it's more of a paraphrase, but it's not incorrect. Let your lifestyle be without covetousness. The love of money leads to all evil. And thus, the, it's the root of all evil. And so there can be all kinds of sins of covetousness that comes as a result of this basic sin of the love of money. Because the love of money, you want more. You love money. You covet money. Uh, and so that will lead to a lifestyle of covetousness, not just in money, but in other areas as well. But I want us to consider Deuteronomy 8, 10 through 20. Now, this passage is particularly speaking about the Jewish people. It's applicable to us in relation uh, to the love of money, but its focus is on the Jewish people when they would ultimately come into the promised land, come into Israel. And we are told in Deuteronomy 8.10, When thou hast eaten and art full, then shall bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full, hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast ha is multiplied, that thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents, scorpions, drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at the latter end. And thou say in thine heart, my power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. So here's a warning. When you come in the land and you get blessed, you get herds and you get uh, houses and you get all kinds of... Um, silver and gold being multiplied in your flocks and your, your herds, that, that your heart doesn't get lifted up, that you think this is what you have done. Uh, and the implication here is that this is a, a love of things and the pride of life that I have done all of this. And God warns the Israelites about this, not to be lifted up. Verse 18, But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that give, give, gives thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore unto thy fathers as it is this day. Now he's speaking here to the Jewish people uh, that if there's any ability to get wealth, it, it's because God has done that for them. And the particular purpose for the Jewish people here is that God would use that ability that he would establish his covenant with them. 
because that wealth could keep them separate from the nations of the world. But he allowed that to happen. He gave them that ability that he could establish his covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, with them. Now, the application, certainly, is if, if you have wealth, ultimately it's a gift from God. Whatever uh, business, whatever uh, vocation you practice that allowed you to get that, uh, God has given you the ability. Maybe it's intellectually, maybe it's working with your hands, maybe it's artistically, whatever the case might be. Uh, as verse uh, 18 says, it is he that gives the power to get wealth. And the application is true for all of us. So wealth can be a, a blessing, but wealth can also be a curse. Because when we get wealth, we become less dependent upon God. Because, hey, we've got all our food, we've got our housing, we've got all of our transportation. You know, we really don't have any need whatsoever. So what do I need God for when I've got all of this stuff? It, we, we put ourselves uh, in, in, in a perilous situation because it's God who gives us the wealth and God can take that away just as quickly. Then he says in verse 19, and it shall be, if thou do it all, forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them. I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroyed, destroyeth before your faith, so shall you perish, because you would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. So if you are lifted up by your wealth, it leads you astray, you're following after other gods, I will judge you, and, and you will perish off of the land. Uh, so th there's this command that we are not to have a love for money. Um, and so our lifestyle should be without covetousness. And the root understanding, the, the Greek word is there, we, we shouldn't have a love for money. And um, you know, money, it, it, there's more marriages that divorce over what issue? Money. Money is the, the major issue that destroys marriages. Um, yes? Well, it can be. Yeah. Yeah, and if you love, you know, because what it, what, what, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Well, if you have a love of money, are you loving the Lord your God with heart, soul, and no? So it is a form of idolatry. Uh, and, and idolatry, according to Ezekiel 14, uh, is not building a idol out of gold, silver, wood, whatever the case might be. Idolatry is anything that we have in our heart that comes before God. Read the first later. Read the first eight verses, ten verses of Ezekiel 44. Israel had put their idols in their heart. Um, and so idolatry can be money. That's the root of us. That, that, that causes so many people to stumble. It's, it's the root of all evil. But idolatry can be a spouse. can be a job. Uh, it can be uh, a position of power. Uh, it can be a position of um, uh, fame, where you think you're better than the other people. That, you know, so there's all kinds of things. Yes, the love of money would be idolatry. So it starts out, let your lifestyle be without the love of money. 
without covetousness because the love of money will lead to greed and covetousness in so many other areas of life. So we're not to be covetous of money. The second point, really building on the first. Um, Luke 12, 13 through 21 says this. And he said unto them, take heed and beware of covetousness for a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. So Jesus speaks and he says, we, we, take heed. Our life is not the toys that we accumulate. Uh, our life is not the abundance of things with, that we have. And that can be gold, that can be silver, that can be cars. Um, you know, I, I think of these, some of these pro athletes, not all of them, certainly, but many of them. Um, especially in, the, in, in NBA where they get just outrageous salaries, you know. Not that some of the others aren't, but 20, 30 million dollars a year or something. And they've got these multi-million dollar homes and huge garages that have 12 different types of, of vehicles in it, Mercedes and Jaguars and so on. And, the, and if that, that's the love of money. And they've been lifted up with, you know, uh, it's the rare case when you find uh, somebody who handles their money uh, well who's in the sports world. Um, but life is not made up of how many cars we have. Life is not made up of how many houses we have. Uh, it's not made up of how many uh, pieces of artwork we have. Uh, I remember years ago, and I think I've told you this story, uh, I witnessed for six months to a very wealthy Jewish man, Manny Kimmel. Uh, Manny used to own Kinney parking lots in New York City. Uh, he was then bought out by Warner Brothers, and he became one of the major stockholders in Warner Brothers. Uh, Manny uh, went to Israel with me when they were filming when Warner Brothers was filming um, uh, Masada. So when we were on Masada, there was the, the, the Roman soldiers and the sets and all. And Manny says, that's my, that's my business. That's my company. Uh, but when I was with Manny took me through, it was very difficult witnessing to Manny. Um, not because of, the, the reason being, he would get a call from his bookie about every 15 minutes. He placed ten to twenty thousand dollar bets on a sporting event, uh, and he gave me a tour of his house. Oh well, I went shopping with with Emmy, Ivy, 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 his wife. Manny was like seventy, and Ivy was thirty five. But anyway, gorgeous one. And we bought these nice vases. Uh, this you know this vase cost you know the, the pair cost two thousand dollars of vases to keep a flower in. You know, why not 10 bucks so you can see the flower? But anyway, but he, he showed me his um, upstairs um, in, his, in, his, in his air-controlled attic, and he had dozens of paintings that weren't, he didn't have enough wall space in his big home. This is a Rembrandt, this is a Picasso. This is a uh, Van Gogh. They're just sitting leaning against other and all I could think of what profit a man to, to gain the whole world and to lose his soul um, Manny had a love for money and he lived the life he lived a nice life he lived a very comfortable life I don't he I don't know if he ever came to the Lord he didn't come to the Lord through my witness to him um, but our life is not made up of the abundance of things which we possess when, when he showed me those paintings, I had not one iota of um, covetousness. 
this is a Van Gogh, this is a, you know, I had not one iota of covetousness. All I, all I, all I had was sadness. That he had all of this, and he had no peace. He had all these possessions, and he had no peace with God. And he knew it. Um, he came from, he was an Orthodox Jewish man. So, look at First Timothy chapter, but our life is not made up of things. Um, and we need to get, we need, in, in, a, in a very consumer-driven society, and that's the United States, we need to get that down as believers. Our life is not, it's not wrong to have things. Abraham was a very wealthy man. Other Bible characters, individuals were wealthy. It's not wealth that's wrong, it's the love of money. And it's, it's just uh, accumulating things to have things. That becomes sinful. Our life should not be made up of the abundance of things which we possess. 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 12 and 17. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. So we are called not to be lovers of money. We are not to live for things. Certainly we need things to get by in this world. We need transportation. We need uh, lodging. We need food. Uh, we need the basic necessities of life for sure. Um, and, and it's not sinful to live in a 5,000 square foot home. Um, you can be more sinful living in a 800 square foot home coveting the guy across town that you know of who lives in that 5,000 square foot home because you're coveting and you want it then that guy in that 5,000 square foot home who isn't coveting anything and he's content uh, and he praises God for God, the blessings God has given and he shares with others the blessings that God has given him. So it's not what you have, it's the love of those things uh, that you have. Um, and God gives some people, as we saw with the Jewish people and the Keep the Covenant, the ability to make money. But the reason is that is to help others. Uh, Proverbs 23, 4 and 5, uh, tell, the, the essence of it is don't make your goal in life to be rich. Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Will thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. We, we should, <laughs> Proverbs can be very uh, poetic at times. But anyway, uh, we, sh we should not labor to be rich. We should labor and work diligently and hard. And if God blesses you, maybe he gives you something that you invent or whatever, and, and you get blessed with many that money, that's fine. But you shouldn't live your life to be a millionaire. That's not, it shouldn't be your goal. You should live your life to be an ambassador for the Lord. And if God wants to bless your efforts with monetary blessing, praise the Lord. But we should not live 
to be rich. That's not what we should be doing. It doesn't mean if you're working at a job and, and you get a, a promotion, uh, an offer for a promotion in that business, well, I don't want to take that because then I might become rich. No, if God opens that door, that's fine. But you shouldn't um, do uh, underhanded things to get that promotion. Just do your job. Be diligent. And if God wants to open that door and give you a new position and get you more money, praise the Lord. But leave it in his hand. Um, and if you don't get that promotion, then you're not going to be bitter. You're not going to be upset. But we shouldn't labor to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. See, the world's wisdom, you know, grab it all now because you only go around once. Uh, that's the world's wisdom. Cease from that. Uh, if wilt thou set thine, th thine eyes upon that which is not? Uh, and the point there is riches are fleeting. Remember the stock market crash in 1929 before the Great Commission, uh, Depression? Uh, at least you've read about it. M most of us weren't around at that point, if any of us. Many people lost their entire fortune. They were jumping out of uh, uh, buildings in, 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 uh, on the stock exchange in Manhattan. <laughs> because they'd lost everything. And their whole life was consumed by what they owned and their bank account. When they lost it all, it was fleeting, uh, as the uh, Proverbs writer says. Uh, riches certainly make themselves wings. They can leave just as easily as they came, maybe even easier. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. They disappear. Uh, so don't set involved. Now, we can see examples of the love of money and what it costs uh, of loving money. Uh, how about Judas? I mean, what a, what a great example of somebody who had the love of money. He was willing to sell the Lord for what? 30 pieces of silver. And there's probably no one else in history more uh, uh, denigrating uh, in character than Judas himself. But think of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, they didn't give all of their money. They held it back because they wanted it themselves. They were ultimately struck dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit. Uh, they had the love of money. Um, so we've got to be very careful. We can get these examples in the word of God. But again, is it wrong to be rich? Psalm 62.10. Riches are not wrong. We just should not trust in them. Trust not in oppression. Become not vain in robbery. This is Psalm 62.10. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. So if God blesses you with money, don't become totally focused on the money. Don't set your heart on the money. Because it can go just as easily as it came. And, and, and if you set your heart on that money and, and, it, and it flees, it leaves, you lose it somehow, it gets stolen, whatever the case might be, you're going to be crushed. But if you have set your affection on God, it's not going to bother you to a great degree. Uh, nobody likes to lose all their money, I grant it. But if you put your heart in that money and that's your love, you're going to be devastated if you lose it. So the ultimate thing then Sure, don't, don't be covetous, don't love money, but don't be covetous of fame, fortune, a job, 
personal pleasure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, some people want to get that extra degree because they think that gives them notoriety. Uh, you're going for the wrong reason if that's the case. We should not be covetous of anything in our life. Um, Solomon is a great example. Solomon had it all, right? As, as it goes. Uh, ultimately, he would come to the realization that all of the allurements of the world are empty. You know, he had power. 1 Kings 4.21. Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river onto the land of the Philistines onto the border of Egypt. And they brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. He was a very powerful king. He was uh, politically powerful. He was militarily powerful. Uh, people, the kings of the nations around him brought him gifts. He had power. People strive for power. Solomon had money. In 1 Kings 10, 14 through 23, it tells us that Solomon had 666 talents of gold. Now, just the, I guess you could say the number itself, 666, you know, kind of is an indication maybe. Uh, but he had 666 talents of gold. A talent was 75 pounds. So 75 pounds times 666 is 49, almost 50,000 pounds of gold. That's a lot of gold. Well, you multiply that by ounces, 16 ounces to a pound. So Solomon had almost 800,000 ounces of gold, 799,200 ounces. That's just gold, it's mentioned. Now, at the close of, or, or during uh, the other day, yesterday, uh, the price of gold was 12.85 an ounce on today's market. That means Solomon, his gold alone was worth over $10 million. No, that was silver. I'm sorry, you know? I know. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm putting silver. I don't know why I put silver in here. It should be, two, I think it was $1,285. $1,285. So, so if we multiply, multiply this by 100, um, what he actually had then was a billion dollars. A billion dollars. Yeah, I, I don't know why I put 1285 anyway. Uh, he had a billion dollars. And that's living back then. A billion dollars is a lot of money today. Um, back then it went a little bit further even. He was a very, very wealthy individual. What does 1 Kings 10:23 tell us? So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. So this guy had everything. He, he was richer than all the kings of the earth. And he had wisdom. You know, at the beginning of his life, he was, um, you know, he was very wise because he was asked, uh, what does he want? And he, he told God, wisdom. At the end of his life, he wasn't too wise. He had sexual pleasure. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 3, in verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Now, the kings of Israel, back in Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, they had been warned, that's, that's the passage about the coming kings of Israel, 
And it said, neither shall he multiply wives to himself, the king. That his heart turned not away, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Solomon did everything he shouldn't have done. He multiplied wives to himself, and he multiplied silver and gold. He should have stuck with the Genesis 2.24 prescription. One man, one woman, leave their parents and cleave together. And instead of hoarding all that gold and building magnificent palaces and such, he should have given it away to the people uh, and helped them. He did everything he shouldn't have done that God had said not to do for the king. And ultimately, exactly what happened, his heart was turned away by all of his wives to follow other gods. Now, at the end of his life, though, if you go back to the, over to the next page, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, the preacher is Solomon. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit to the man of all his labor which he takes under the sun? What good is the labor of what man does? Anything and everything under the sun. All is vanity. Vanity of vanities. And, and I think the best illustration of vanity um, is a soap bubble. If you blow a soap bubble, we did it with our daughter when she was three or four. The first time we did it, you know, you get, you get this little bottle with a soapy liquid and you get that little plastic, uh, you know, ring, you know, and you stick it in there and then you, you blow and all of a sudden you have six or eight or ten or twelve bubbles of different sizes, soap bubbles floating through the air. Well, when Deborah saw that, and she was just a little, little thing, uh, her eyes, and she had, the, she had the most magnificent eyes of any child ever born in the history of the world. Um, she really did. Now, this is not a parental um, <laughs> bias at all. This is just fact. I just tell you what's true. She had gorgeous, right, Cheryl? She doesn't know. She's hedging. Gorgeous eyes. And her eyes lit up. Just She was so excited. And I can only went think what, you know, what, went, what went through this little three or four year old's mind. Wow, is my daddy a major, major player in this world. I mean, here we're sitting down bored out of our gourd. You know, and all of a sudden we've got all these balloons floating through the world, through, through, the, through the air. She couldn't wait. And, and her face was so bright, so lit up. Her eyes were so excited so expressive, she couldn't wait to get off that stool and go and grab one of these balloons and play with them. And so she reached out for the smallest one, right? No. She reached for the biggest one. And when she reached for it and she grabbed that big, she thought balloon or whatever, soap bubble, what happened to it? Poof. It was gone. She was so disappointed. You can see it in her, in her face. And, and she thought, my dad's not too cool. He's not that great, you know. So she was so disappointed. That's vanity of vanities. Soap bubbles, soap bubbles. Soap bubbles had a lot of allurement, a lot of potential. But when you reach out and grab it, there's nothing there. That's the world. That's what Solomon learned. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of van All is van. Everything under the sun is vanity. 
fame, fortune, sex, money, educational prowess, all, everything is vanity. What profit of the man of all his labor which he takes under the sun? And then at the close of the book, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Everything under the sun is vanity. Yes, we have to work. Yes, we have to eat. Yes, we have to clothe ourselves. Yes, we have to have lodging. Uh, but that's just something basic that God will provide. Uh, but if we go to, to an extreme, it's vanity. It's worthless. It's nothing. What's the conclusion? Fear God. Keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of men. Not to get rich. Not to get fame. Not to become a PhD, although there's nothing wrong with that. So the flip side of this whole thing then, you know, don't be covetous. Don't have love of money. But the flip side is to be content then. If you're content, you're not going to have love of money. You're not going to have covetousness. You're not going to have greed. Uh, be content with what you have. Um, 1 Timothy 6, 6 and 8. And, and again, going back to the verse, it says, uh, let your conversation be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Probably I should have put that verse down here. Be content with such things as you have. If you have a Lexus automobile, be content. If you have a 1976 um, Dodge Dart, get a new car. But be content. You know, be content, you know, with whatever you have. Um, don't be covetous of somebody else. First Timothy 6, 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. It's certain we can carry nothing out of this world. Having food and raiment, let us be there with content. So godliness with contentment, great gain. We came into the world with nothing. We're leaving the world with nothing. In between those two points, be content with what you have in life. And if you have godliness with contentment, it's going to be great gain. You are going to be just, you're going to be at peace. You're going to be at rest. You're going to be approved by God. You're going to be everything God wants you to be. So contentment is a must. It's a necessity. Um, Matthew, and, and verse 8, having food and raiment, let us be there with content. The basics. Now, if God blesses you with, with, with more, that's fine. But be content with whatever you have. Uh, Matthew six thirty three and 34. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. All these things are the necessity, basic necessity of life. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He will meet your needs. And then it goes on. Take therefore no thought for the morrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So be content with today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Now that's tough. I, I admit. Um, we get into predicaments of, of life. And we're, we get all wrapped up in them. Uh, and it's very, very difficult sometimes to let go. And oftentimes it goes back to the love of money. 
we need to get to a place that if God wants to take all of our money, take it all, God, because you are my priority. Uh, and and when, when, things, you know, when things look bad, the stock market's gone south, um, maybe your house has been broken into, a lot of stuff has been stolen, maybe a tornado comes through and you're wiped out and you don't have it. You know, there's all kinds of scenarios we, we can paint. Um, if you're content with your walk with the Lord, you're going to treat what happens much better and you're going to be getting through that whole ordeal much easier. But we get so wrapped up in what we have, um, we, we just handle it wrong. So thought, take no thought for the morrow, meaning don't be anxious. Don't be troubled with cares. Uh, don't seek to promote one's interests. Caring or providing, God's in charge. Um, Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Be careful, literally anxious, for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So if we're anxious for nothing, in other words, we're content in whatever condition we are, uh, and that's what the next couple of verses in Philippians says that I have down here. Not that I speak of in respect of want, Paul says. For I have learned. See, this is something we learn over time. It just doesn't happen overnight. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am. I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased. I know how to abound. I know how to be brought down and suffer and have want. And I know how to have all kinds of blessing and abound and stuff. Everywhere and on all things I am instru instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul says, I have learned to be content in life with the Lord. Sometimes I've had blessings, sometimes I've had want, but it doesn't matter. I've learned to be content. We have to learn to be content. But if we, if we strive for money, if we live for money, if, if that becomes our goal or fame or fortune or whatever, you will never find peace, true contentment, because that can be taken away easily. Then in verse, the next thought, going back here to um, the end of verse 5. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. See, we don't need to be covetous. We shouldn't be covetous. We should be content. And our contentment needs to be focused in the Lord because the promise is he will never leave us or forsake us. Gold is fleeting. Money is fleeting. Fame is fleeting. You can be a world-class athlete today, and tomorrow you can bust your knee out with an ACL tear or whatever, and your career is ruined. And there goes all the fame and all the adulation that you get God never leaves us or forsakes us so if we are content in him we will never be let down so this is again the other side of the coin uh, for he has said I will never leave thee nor forsake thee friends may leave spouses may leave Jesus will not leave now this promise I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee most likely resonated 
with these Jewish, he's speaking to Jewish believers here, although this is applicable to all, all of us. But it's, remember, it's the book of Hebrews. And this promise should have resonated with those Jewish believers because uh, th this, this thought is taken from God's promise to Israel as they were about to enter the promised land. In other words, I will never leave thee or forsake thee. And so now he's speaking to the Jewish believers, be content with me because I will never leave thee for, or forsake thee. Look at Deuteronomy 31, 6 through 8. Be strong and of good courage, fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doeth, doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And Moses called unto Joshua, said unto him in the sight of all Israel, be strong of a good courage, for thou must go with this people unto the land which the Lord has sworn unto the fathers to give them. And thou shalt cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he it is that does go before thee. He will be with thee. He will not fail thee, neither forsake thee. Fear not, neither be dismayed. And so here in Hebrews, when these Jewish believers are told, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. This should have resonated, probably resonated with them, because this was the exact same thing that God told to the Israelites, their forefathers. But it's, it's, it's much stronger in the Greek. Now, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You actually have here a double negative. And, and the double negative, udi uh, umei, it's very strong language of denial. In other words, never, never, never will I forsake thee or leave thee. I will never, never leave thee. It's just, it's very sure. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. It would hardly be possible in English to give the full weight of the Greek. We might render it he himself has said, I will never, never desert you. And I will never, never, never abandon you. Though that would be not a literal, but rather a free rendering. Yet, since there are five negatives in the Greek, we do, do not know how to give their force in any other way. In other words, with the double negative and the force of it, it is an extremely powerful statement that God is making, I will never, 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 never leave thee. Amen. I don't understand people who think he'll leave you. Uh, but there are those who are out there who think that Jesus will leave you if you don't pick up right or at the wrong time or do something wrong. It is just, it is a very, very strong statement. So, so why should you not love money? Why should you not covet stuff? Why should you be content with what you have? Because your focus in life is the Lord and what he is. And he will never leave you. No, he will never, never, never leave you. Money can leave you. Fame can leave you. Spouses can leave. Friends can be fickle and leave. Your health will leave you. All kinds of things. But Jesus will never, never, never leave you. So be content in him. 
If you put your love in money or any of these other things, you are destined for despair and sorrow because those things are temporal. The promise of the Lord never, and I'm on the back page now, never leaving or forsaking us is again reminiscent of God's promise to Israel. In 1 Samuel 12, 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it pleased the Lord to make you his people. I cannot leave you. It's my character that's at stake. I will not forsake my people. And just and Ezekiel 36, 21 and 22. But I had pity for mine holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen wherever they went. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen wherever you went. What I'm going to do for you, Israel, is not because you deserve it. You don't deserve it. I'm going to bring to fruition my promises to you because you are my people and my character, my reputation, my name is at stake. And so I will do this because of my reputation. And that's the whole purpose of Romans 9, 11. Uh, the previous eight chapters, believers, we will one day be glorified. How do we know that? Because we're his people. Not like Israel, we're the church, we're his people. And he will not forsake us. He will bring us to the completion of his promise. And just as he will bring to completion his promise for us, heaven, glorification, a new body in heaven, he will bring to completion his promise to Israel. And, and, and I can't drive that home enough. Um, I, I, you know, I, I was in California. Um, Trying to remember which killing it was. It was just a couple of days ago. I don't think it was the... I think it was the synagogue killing. The young man went into the synagogue in Poway, you know, in the San Diego area. Um, and he, you know, one lady was killed and he wanted to, you know... He came from a Bible-believing church. Was raised by Bible-believing parents. And supposedly he believed that the only way to salvation is Jesus. Now this, and uh, the article I was reading about it um, was just saying how Christians need to be aware um, that this is becoming more prominent, it seems, that uh, children, he wasn't really a child, I guess, he was, you know, an adult, uh, from Bible-believing homes, professing Bible-believing truth, are doing heinous acts. Um, and he had a hatred for the Jewish people. One of the things I think the article missed, and I don't, I, the, the writer is born again. I don't know the writer. I know of the writer. I've heard he's born again. Um, I don't know what his belief system is. I don't know, is he Baptistic? Is he Presbyterian? Is he Pentecostal? I, I don't know any of that stuff. But the young man, or, or the man who shot up the synagogue, 
came from a Bible-believing Presbyterian church which teaches that God is through with the Jews and ultimately by extension God hates the Jews and God has cursed the Jews and the church is the new Israel replacement theology. Did that theology that he was raised in have any influence on his hatred for Jewish people and ultimately what he did in that synagogue? I won't say for sure it did, but it's very possible. I've never talked to the young man, never expect to talk to the man who shot that, that young man. But I think that's what the guy missed in his article, is the bad teaching of this Bible-believing Presbyterian church. <coughs> we have to keep Israel in our understanding and what God teaches. Um, otherwise, havoc will be wrought. Finally, realize it doesn't matter what man does to us. God is our helper. Here's how it ends in verse 6. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Boldly. Speak out. We can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. In other words, we have to do the first two things. We can't have the love of money. We can't be covetous in our life, whether it's the love of money or it leads to the love of fame and power or whatever the case might be. No, we have to be content. And when we do those two things, we then may can boldly say, God's my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Now what this verse do, or this phrase, it, it couples two psalms together. Psalm 118 verse 6 says this, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? And the 56th psalm verse 11, In God have I put my trust I will not be afraid of what man can do unto me. So fear, afraid, is phobio. When you, when you think of that Greek, what, what's the, uh, the English word you think of? Phobio and... Well, well drop, drop the cloths. But if you have a phobia, you have a fear. Claustrophobia is what? The fear of enclosed spaces. But there's... All kinds of phobias, right? The spheres of snakes, and, the, and I don't remember all the actual terms. Uh, agoraphobia, fear of heights, and fear of this, and fear of that. Uh, that's what phobia is. It means to be frightened, to, frightened, to be alarmed. Uh, but by analogy, it's to be in awe of, revere, fear, exceedingly re reverence. It can mean to be afraid but in the biblical world, it means to be in awe of and reverence. We should not be f in fear of any man. John MacArthur put it well, I think, when he put it this way, talking about the word phobia. The most common use of it in the New Testament represents reverential awe, not cringing fright, 
It expresses the feeling of a person who is in the presence of someone infinitely superior. Now he's commenting on this word. <clears throat> in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Acts, the term is never used to speak of anything other than the feeling in a person's heart when he's confronted with divine power. And it is declared to be a part of the Christian's attitude as he seeks to faithfully serve the Lord, Acts 9.31. Reverential awe of God is a part of the truly repentant life, 2 Corinthians 7. The chaste life, 1 Peter 3.2. The holy life, 2 Corinthians 7.1. And the godly life, Philippians 2.12. Mutual ministry, love, and respect, as well as powerful evangelism, and proper church discipline are all grounded in reverential awe of the Lord. It is the substance out of which all Christian worship, behavior, and service must come. But here, that awe should not be reflected to a human. I will not fear what man can do unto me. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. In other words, we should not be afraid of any man. We will all, at times in life, run into someone who is much more superior than us, much more powerful in authority than us. He can be a police officer. He can be a mayor. He can be a city council officer, he, a city councilman or woman. He can be a congressman. He can be a president of the country. But if we are living, as these verses say, not to be covetousness, being content, we will be living in upright, perfect, not perfect without sin, but an upright life before God. And godliness with contentment is great gain. And it doesn't matter what people do think about us or do. It doesn't matter whether it's the president, whether it's the congressman, whatever. It doesn't matter because we have put our trust totally in the Lord. And we do this by making sure that we are free from the love of money, not living our life based on covetousness, but being content in the Lord and focusing on him. And when we do that, we will have a victorious life. And you will and you will just you will get a great entrance one day into heaven. We learn how to do this. It does doesn't happen overnight. Don't be greedy. Don't be covetous. Certainly not the root of all evil, the love of money. Learn to be content in the Lord and content with whatever state you're in. You're healthy, you're not healthy. You're wealthy, you're not wealthy. You have fame, you don't have fame. You have a position of authority or you're just a non-position of no authority in a business. Be content wherever you are and be godly, and you will have great gain, and you will find the favor of God and live a victorious life. Any thoughts before we pray? Duff, difficult to do, but very easy to understand what we need to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Lord, some very basic, again, admonitions in the close of this book. Lord, how can we live for you, boldly live for you? It's not to be covetous. 
us to, to be content with all that we have because our focus is on you. Help us to do that, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Bless our time. Bless our fellowship. Bless the food. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.